Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Rosemary Butt is the Alison Hansen Cook Professor of Women and Work at the Industrial Labor Relations School at Cornell University. She is a professor in human resource studies and international and comparative labor. And we were very eager to speak with her because of a report she wrote with Eileen Applebaum about financialization in healthcare, which is one of the most detailed and accessible documents we've found on the subject. So let's have a listen. Today, we're incredibly lucky to have Professor Rose Bart joining us, and we're just thrilled to have you here because, number one, you and your colleague Eileen Applebaum have written just a superb article about the financialization in healthcare, and Wendy and I were both so struck by this when we read it that we thought we just had to reach out to you and talk some more. I guess I'd like to start by getting you to give our listeners an overview of what got you interested in this and what you're working on now. So Eileen and I started this project in about 2009-10 when uh, we were shocked by the Great Recession and uh, all of the negative effects it was having on Main Street companies and, and workers and their families. And we thought that our own fields of business and employment relations was not capturing the power of financial actors and their impact on how businesses run. And so we decided we would start looking at that issue. And in doing so, we thought, well, the you know finance is huge. How are we going to manage to carve out a piece? And it became obvious to us that private equity firms, which we'll go into detail on what they actually do, are these financial actors that are most powerful in taking over organizations, companies, and managing them in ways that extract wealth for their own uh, well-being and their own profits at the expense of the stability of the companies and the employees and their communities. And so we started focusing on private equity, and we didn't know uh, much about it at all. And it turns out that they have been a very kind of hidden actor, because when they buy out a company, they own the company, but the name of the company is still present for people to see. So if there's anything that goes on that is negative, the uh, attribution goes to the company rather than to the private equity firm. So we were very interested in this phenomenon, and that got us going, and we spent a few years studying it and then writing a book on the general topic of private equity at work, and that is how Wall Street manages Main Street. And at an early stage, we began to feel that healthcare was a sector that was particularly vulnerable, and that the damage that would be done to people in healthcare, uh, workers, uh, the quality of care, the potential for uh, mortality effects, was great. So we decided to focus on healthcare, although we have done work in many other sectors as well. So I love that, that impetus and and how you went from broad to more specific. One of the things that I think our listeners could use is we're going to be talking about financialization in healthcare. And I wonder if you could just help us 
you know, give us a definition or, or explain what that means. Right. So first of all, I don't particularly like the, the term. It's, it's too cumbersome, but it emerged uh, in the academic literature in the economics and political economy literature in response to uh, the, the bubble years of the 2000s and the Great Recession. And the simple way of thinking about it is that it is turning productive enterprises into financial assets so that everything you think about when you own an enterprise is not how to make it more productive or better serviced for consumers, or in this case, in patients, but it is to figure out a way to extract the most wealth from that entity. So you turn, in this case, healthcare, a social good into a financial asset or a financial chit. And then, because you do that, then the idea is, you can buy and sell them at any time because you don't care about the long-term effects on the productive enterprise. What you care about is making money. So if you find you can sell a hospital and make money, you just do it quickly. And then, oh, this one over here, I can buy because it looks like I can get that cheaply and then I can hold it for a few years and then I can sell it. So it's, it's, it's turning the financial assets into a market good that you, you buy and sell that is devoid of human content. Rose, this is just wonderful because one of the things you have the skill of doing is turning some of this somewhat complicated finance and economic talk that clinicians aren't used to hearing and talking about and thinking about into examples that are so palpable and so easy to understand. So that's wonderful <laughs> the way you do that. And one of the examples of that in the article that we're both talking about, which we'll put in the show notes, is the the terms inside out and outside in as a descriptor of how healthcare was reshaped over, over a long period of time, decades. Mm -hmm. This is not recent. But could you explain those terms a little bit as well, the, the outside in and the inside out yeah. uh, way that things have changed? Yes. So the definition of financialization, when it goes uh, a little bit deeper, is to say there are two, two ways that the overall economy has become more financialized or more financial, where the power of financial actors is greater. And the first is in the percent of the GDP that is profits for the financial sector. So that is the outside-in story, which in the case of healthcare means that financial actors are going and buying the assets in healthcare. So they are expanding their reach into healthcare and extracting profits in what is a productive uh, Main Street type business for the, for the financial sector. So they are, they are moving into healthcare. They are investing, buying up healthcare organizations. Then they are extracting wealth and that wealth goes back to the financial investors. And a, a good analogy would be if you have a local town and the 
shops are owned by big box companies and you go to buy at the big box, all of that money leaves the community. But if you have locally owned retail stores and the, the people go to the local stores, then the money stays in the community. So if you have outside investors coming in, the, the profits from the healthcare leave the healthcare sector. So that is the outside in concept. The inside out concept is where the a healthcare organization increases the proportion of its revenues that come from non-healthcare sources. And so what that means is when hospitals are strapped, they need money. They start investing in venture capital or in private equity or in uh, um, for-profit subsidiaries that supplement the healthcare operating funds. So if you look at an entire balance sheet of a hospital, maybe 50% or more of the money is actually coming from non-healthcare operations. And the danger of that is that the hospital may start paying more attention to the financial strategies outside of healthcare. So, for example, there's more of an incentive for a CEO to say, boy, if I make more money in venture capital or my for-profit subsidiary, I can pay myself a higher salary. I can redo my administrative offices. So there's this temptation to move the focus away from the healthcare goals and mission to other financial activities. So those are the two ways in which this thing we call financialization operates. Yeah, so I, I think that's, um, there are so many parts of that that I want to talk about. <laughs> um, but I think the first place to start is when you talk in this paper about three very distinct phases of financialization starting back in the 1960s, right? So this didn't happen yesterday. It didn't even happen in 2000. It happened in 1960. And the first phase that you talk about is investor-driven for-profit chains. So can you talk a little bit about what happened in 1960 that started? Because in 1965 or so, 10% of the hospitals were for-profit. It was a very small number, right? And then they started to grow. And what drove that? So uh, the story about healthcare financialization is a big part of it is about government changes, changes in, in government regulation. And so when we think about um, who cooperated, it is politicians, local and state leaders, as well as investors, as well as healthcare leaders. Um, and so there's plenty of ways in which people came together. Some of it was, frankly, well-intentioned, but as we know, good intentions can go bad. But the concern in the 60s was that there was not enough access to healthcare. And the, there was a strong market mentality that 
that investors were driving, which says, let's open up healthcare to the market. And the market is more efficient and the market can raise capital. That's the other thing. Nonprofits are dependent on debt. Whereas for profits can go to the, the stock market, can raise capital and can grow more rapidly. So that logic of bringing the market into healthcare started in the 60s and was particularly present in the 1965 Medicare and Medicaid Acts, which said that they would fund, the government would fund for profits. And not only that, the government funding for the nonprofits was at a higher rate, considerably higher rate than the nonprofits because the legislators believed that any for-profit entity should return money to its shareholders. So the government was funding, you know, dividends for the shareholders. It's almost unbelievable, isn't it? It's almost unbelievable that that these machinations actually happened and were allowed to happen. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and people thought they were doing good. And it fed right into Milton Friedman. Of course, Milton Friedman's um, the only purpose of the corporation is to um, benefit shareholders emerged in 1971. And the 70s was critical. And this is, it's broader than healthcare, which is that the 70s saw this turn towards viewing the corporation. And so as, as hospitals became corporations, viewing for-profit entities um, as their only goal was to maximize profits. So this was a general phenomenon in the economy, but then took off in healthcare, which is a place where we would least have expected it. And then, so that was the 60s, and um, there was a, a big percentage increase in for-profit hospitals between 1965 and 1985. Uh, my numbers, the, the numbers are murky, but my numbers are that they went to about 10% in 1985. And then they increased, they doubled again to about 20% in the 2000s. And now they stand at 24% of hospitals. Um, and the numbers are difficult to to get at, but that's the the kind of trend we're seeing. So, but the first phase was, goes from about 1965 to 1995 or so. And the leader was Hospital Corporation of America, HCA. And their strategy was not about efficiency. Their strategy was about gobbling up community nonprofit hospitals in rural towns and small towns particularly in the South, to create monopoly power. That is uh, increasingly well documented. And it wasn't just HCA. Then there were other follow-ons. But the idea was that you go for buying up the small community hospitals where there's only one hospital or two hospitals in town, and then you can raise prices. So HCA was a leader in that innovation. They called it an innovation. And uh, it led to monopoly power in many places. There's a great example today. There's a big um, um, fight going on in antitrust a class action in Asheville, North Carolina. So even though the, that first phase was in the 60s through 90s, 
it hasn't stopped. Uh, it's continued. The right now HCA, as you probably know, has 184 hospitals in 21 states and over 2,000 decentralized clinics and other sites and over 270,000 employees. So imagine this is an example I mentioned where all of the employees who are employed by HCA, they're getting their paycheck from a national chain, their orientation, their incentives, everything is driven to maximize the profits of the chain, not provide the best care to local residents, even though those employees do that. I'm not saying they don't, but they are under stress to maximize the profits of the chain, often against their own values of providing good quality care. Rose, that encapsulates moral injury in a nutshell. So thank you for throwing that in there totally unprompted by us. The next step that I sort of wanted to transition to briefly is nonprofit hospitals. Because the term nonprofit hospital is murky and confusing to a lot of people, uh, including people who work at nonprofit hospitals, I think. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of the challenges that nonprofit hospitals have faced and, and how some of the things that nonprofit hospitals have done in reaction have shaped healthcare and created some of the issues that we, we see today. So, my understanding, it, first of all, there's, there was a major change again going back to changes in regulation in 1998. 1998, Congress passed a law that said that nonprofits could establish for profit entities, subsidiaries that would not be taxable. So, when I talked earlier about the uh, growth of the financial arms of the nonprofits, it goes back to 1998 when Congress passed this law. Now, the struggles that hospitals, nonprofits face are enormous, right? They, um, they often have uh, reimbursement rates that do not keep up with the rising cost of inflation. We know that population health management has been a strategy to try to move the needle on that, but it's been very fraught. Uh, but it's clearly safe to say that many, many nonprofits have faced going into uh, the red more often than not. And so they, they do need to figure out how they're going to survive. And in that desire to survive, there, is, there have been created incentives to move to these other financial uh, activities, for-profit uh, sub, uh, subsidiaries that are not taxed, venture capital arms, it is more often the case that that is occurring among academic medical uh, uh, centers because they have the resources to do so. And the we all know that the rural hospitals have been closing at uh, you know alarming numbers. Um, but these stresses and strains have also been exacerbated by the fact that the for-profits as they grow, they're in a better position to compete. And so the community or the local hospitals may lose out to, to patients that go to the for-profits because they, they're more resourced. And so at a time when they're trying to manage their finances uh, because of, of 
costs going up or reimbursement rates not keeping up. They also may be losing some of their patient base, their volume to the competitors in uh, the, who are the for-profits in their communities. Um, and I did, I want to tie this actually to the second phase of the, um, the financialization, if, if, if we can move in that direction. Um, so you have the nonprofits as of 1998 starting to move in this direction, right, of trying to find other financial strategies. They actually tried to use derivatives in the uh, 2000s, and that was absolutely disastrous. But the what's going on parallel is the rise of private equity ownership of hospitals. And so if I do, let me do a, a little bit of a diversion to just say briefly what private equity is. The private equity business model is one in which a private equity firm uh, goes to investors and, and raises a fund. And 98% of that money comes from the investors. 2% comes from the general partners of the private equity firm. Right off the top, the private equity firm gets 2% annual management fees from the investors to the firm, the private equity firm. The investors have to keep their money in for 10 years. And so if you multiply two times 10, that would be 20%. And if you have a billion dollar fund, as many private equity firms do now, that means 200 million off the top goes to the private equity firm and they can do whatever they want with it. They, are, they do not have to expense they do not have to account for how they use that money back to the investors. That's just assumed to be what they need to do due diligence. Okay, then they go and they buy a company, entire company, in this case, say a hospital, and they buy it using about 30% of the equity and 70% debt. So they're throwing the debt on the hospital. And so their skin in the game, if you do the math, is 0.02 or 2% of the investment fund times 0.3 of the enterprise cost because the rest is being uh, fi financed by the creditors. So the private equity fund is putting in less than 1% of the enterprise value of the company, of the organization. That means, and then that using 30% means you can buy multiple entities. And if one of those goes bankrupt, it doesn't matter. The private equity firm is maximizing profits at the level of the private equity firm. It is using the portfolio companies as cash cows to service the debt. That's the model. And then when they sell the entity, they sell the hospital, they get 20% of the profits. So they put in 1% or 2%, they get 20% return. Rose, I just have to say this is th these numbers are not only striking, but they're unbelievable. And I, I think that if even half the doctors who are being exposed to this were aware of these numbers, they would be just absolutely 
floored by it. I mean, I was at a meeting the other day discussing private equity buyouts of private practices, and those numbers looked bad. But the numbers you're telling us are just just horrific when you actually start doing the math. So thank you for bringing these to the fore. I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing. And when we go one step further and we talk about the patients who are coming to the hospital, who are paying exorbitant bills because they're going to a monopoly that's raised prices, and so their co-pays are higher, and their co-insurance is higher, and then when that hospital gets sold, maybe it goes under or it closes, they no longer have health care. That's right. Yeah, so they've footed the bill for all the, all the, the profits that have been extracted from right. them. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and there, it's exactly. horrible to think about. There are two additional, two or three additional features that really are salient in healthcare. The first is that uh, because most buyouts are small, like even a community hospital, 100 million, doctor's practices are small. The business model is that the private equity firm creates a platform, first buys one practice, then another, then another, rolls them up into a larger entity. Um, The private equity firm goes completely under the radar of the Federal uh, Trade Commission because the hurdle of the FTC to investigate whether something is uh, a violation of antitrust is now 200 million. Most doctors' practices are not going to be sold for 200 million. And so they are able to create these these platforms that have concentrated market power, even if it's not monopoly, but they have concentrated power without being challenged by the Federal Trade uh, Commission. That's changing a bit. Uh, There's more attention now, but that is why we see doctors' practices being able to be gobbled up. And, you know, with, with, with respect to the doctors, I have to say that the you know, there is this push and pull. So the private equity firms want to get into these niche markets where they can make a lot of money. So the demand for the private equity firms is we want um, niches where there are high reimbursement rates. So more complex, let's go for trauma centers or burn centers, or we want to go where there's high demand. And the hot markets, by the way, right now are Uh, capitalizing on baby boomers dying, which is home care and hospice, and capitalizing on the opioid epidemic. And um, so they're buying up substance abuse clinics. I'll say a couple more things and then then we can um, maybe move on to the third phase. But the other thing that um, private equity firms have done very successfully in healthcare and by the way, everything we've talked about so far is perfectly legal, is that once they buy out the hospital, they sell the property underneath the hospital to a real estate investment trust, which are known as REITs. And then the hospital, which probably owned the, the real estate since the 1800s, is now paying inflated rent on property because they're maybe in the in the city where all the property values have gone sky high. Then that cuts into the long-term net revenues of the hospital. And there are typically escalator clauses. So every year the rent goes up. 
And these are long-term rents. They can be, they can be 15, 20 years or more with escalator clauses. But in the meantime, private equity, the average private equity uh, buyout sells within five years. So the healthcare data shows that the median uh, length of holding a property in healthcare is 4.8 years. So the hospitals have inflated rents over the long term. The private equity takes the proceeds from the buyout, from the uh, sale of the real estate, and gives itself dividends. So uh, the example, the easy example that many would know is Steward System, which was bought out as a Catholic hospital system of six hospitals in 2011. The Massachusetts AG required certain conditions to change the nonprofit to a for-profit. And uh, the Cerberus, which was the, ca the private equity firm, complied. They did some investments, et cetera. But in 2016, as soon as it got out of the uh, purview of the AG's decision, it sold off the hospital property for $1.25 billion, which means that within five years, Cerberus had made its money back and more. So the sale leasebacks, uh, another, finally, another financial trick is to take out additional loan on and put it on the hospital and then take the proceeds of that loan and also pay dividends to the investors. And the hospital is saddled with more debt, but also debt with a higher interest rate because the loan now is considered like junk level or C grade. And so in all of those different ways, private equity is able to extract resources, extract wealth in a short period of time and then resell and exit. And leave all of those community hospitals, those small rural community hospitals teetering under the burden of that debt. And the Boston area city hospitals, because Steward uh, is with six hospitals in and around Boston area. So one of the things that strikes me about this is that when you've got a hospital, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, they're both focused on the same thing which is maximizing their margin, whether they're doing it through revenue generation from the healthcare side, or they're doing it from revenue generation from investments or whatever. And as the financialization happens, the healthcare side becomes a smaller piece of the pie. It used to be 100%, and now in some places, it's 50% or less. And so the concerns of the clinicians start to become less important to the organization as the revenue that they generate becomes less meaningful as a piece of the pie. That's absolutely right. Um, and we've seen this in other industries uh, where, for example, where there are unions that used to be bargaining with the hospital management and the hospital needs the cooperation of employees. And, you know, in healthcare, it's one of the more unionized 
um, industries at this point, particularly among nurses and and uh, to and about the same percentage. I think it's in the about thirteen percent. And so historically, because everything depends on the employees and getting them to be productive citizens and and workers, then management has an incentive to compromise and to raise wages, to create a workplace that will inspire loyalty and commitment. Once you start having a substantial portion of your revenues coming from somewhere else, then, you know, workers, okay, so we have high turnover at particularly at the lower level among the the what people th- think of as unskilled workers and and of course we know they're not unskilled at all um then we start seeing care suffer higher turnover rates higher um absenteeism um just a, a real kind of degradation of the workforce and so that process is definitely one that we should be aware of. Rose, I may have a, a question to sort of wrap up a little bit here, and I recognize we haven't even brushed the surface of where we should be going with this, but uh, but we try to keep our podcast to about half an hour. And, and so I'm going to ask a question, which is actually a very large question, and I think it's going to be very relevant to a lot of people listening. But I also want to preface this by saying, I think we have a lot more to speak about, so hopefully this isn't our last conversation. But in the interest of giving some of our listeners something to sort of tangibly walk away with, I think just talking today, but also reading this uh, this paper, I think there's no question that the financialization of healthcare has overshadowed many of the aspects of care and well-being of a society and, frankly, well-being of the workforce within that group. Uh, but my question to you is if you were the czar of the world and you could change just a few things, what would you do with the healthcare? And I recognize this is a long question, but what would what are the, the smallest or the single few things that you would do to try and make this less bad than it already is? You know, I'm not a healthcare policy person, so I can't, you know, I can I can say yes. Let's have um, you know healthcare for all. Let's have an integrated system. And but I'm not a health economist in that sense. And you know that I don't have the the evidence and the and the expertise to really advocate for that. Although personally, I think that's the way to go. Um, I think that's the way to go because you take out so many of the layers. At which people are extracting wealth and profits. So the more integrated a system you have and the the more curbs on this kind of financial activity, the better. Um, I can talk about private equity in healthcare. There, there are a number of very doable things to do. The first is to limit debt, to limit the percent of debt that you can put on. The second is to increase transparency. Right now, not even limited partners, not even the investors know how private equity is really investing, how they do the valuations, et cetera. Um, A third is to just ban uh, things like sale leasebacks 
where they they sell off the property and to ban the taking out of additional loans in the first three to five years. In other words, and to require reporting requirements that are at the level of what we require of publicly traded corporations. We don't have any of those requirements. The, the other thing is to make private equity responsible as an employer. So currently, most what mostly happens in the case of a false claims uh, act or in a bankruptcy is that the company, and what I mentioned earlier about reputational effects, the company is viewed as the, uh, the the one responsible, the one who's making the decisions. But in fact, it's the private equity owners behind the scenes who are making all the strategic decisions that lead to an undermining of the financial stability of the portfolio company. And so private equity firms should be held accountable as employers and as the strategic decision makers. Um, another example of this is in the Warren Act. So when a company goes bankrupt, if a, a hospital would go bankrupt, then uh, it's required to give 60 days notice to the employees and full pay. But many private equity driven bankruptcies uh, have been, have not followed that. The courts have ruled that the private equity firm is not responsible, but in fact, it's the company. Well, that's ridiculous because it's the private equity firm that's calling the shots. So there are a series of specific private equity type activities that if you shrank them, you would shrink the, the rapid financialization that's going on. And you would also um, take away the incentive for the for-profit hospitals and the non-profit hospitals to act like to engage in the kind of behavior that they've seen private equity can get away with. Um, and finally, there's uh, there are other. Uh, so I have a very clear idea of what you can do to rein in the financial actors who are causing this kind of pain. And in terms of healthcare as a whole. Uh, once you start taking out the ex excessive private um, um, profit motives and also creating more transparency, which is not at all clear with our insurance companies and et, et cetera, et cetera, then you can begin to rein in some of, I think, the worst excesses of, of financialization. Rose, thank you so much. Thank you for the clarity you bring to this. You know, in that last few moments, you use the word pain that this brings. And I think that's a really appropriate word because this isn't just about somebody, you know, purchasing a super yacht or driving around in a Lamborghini. This is about pain that's being created for the people in the workspace and indirectly the pain that's being created for the communities that those workspaces service. So I think it's a great word. And I really congratulate you on some some fantastic writing and and clarity to an issue that I think a lot of us have allowed to go under the radar. So thank you so much for joining us and, and thank you for all your work. Well, thank you. And I have to say, the only reason I can speak clearly about it is I had to teach myself what it really meant. <laughs> that meant uh, speaking uh, truth to uh, to lay people. Yeah, it's wonderful.
it's a skill. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you. So, Wendy, for me, that was unbelievably both educational and interesting, particularly because there are so many people out there who have spoken to me about private equity and different ways that healthcare is funded. And so I know that was a fairly brief discussion, but I just found so much knowledge in it and really enjoyed reading her report. Yeah, I've read a lot about private equity in the last few months, and there was nothing I found that was more detail-oriented, went into the history, went into the consequences, and was as accessible as that article that they wrote. And so it would be great to have her back so we could go into more details, but in the interim, I think this this really stands on its own. It's a great primer. Exactly. So we'd encourage anybody uh, who's further interested to go to the show notes and, and read Dr. Bart's report, which just has so much information in it, both history and consequences. Thanks for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. Our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can also make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes, so you can continue the conversation. And you can help spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. And if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, it makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well.